It's my joy and privilege to be able to be the one to welcome and to introduce our guest proclaimer this morning, although you already know his name, uh, Dr. Larry Hovis. He's really not a stranger to Oakmont nor to Greenville because Larry used to hang his hat right down the road at the Memorial Baptist Church where he served as pastor for about 15 years before accepting a position that he now holds as executive coordinator of the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship of North Carolina. You, many of you know this, and may, some of you might not, but Larry and our pastor, Greg Rogers, have a really good friendship. And I think that Greg has probably called on that friendship or perhaps even abused that friendship through the years and invited Larry back to speak whenever he's away and we look forward to his speaking today and also uh, next week as well. This past week I went on the website uh, cbfnc.org just to look a little bit about the bio on Larry and saw that he has preached in over 200 churches here in North Carolina and beyond. You know, Oakmont continues to be very involved in and in supportive of the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship of North Carolina. That group's motto or goal or purpose is to bring Baptist of North Carolina together for Christ-centered ministry. Larry stands at the helm of that ship and continues to give wonderful and excellent leadership and we are delighted to have both Larry and his wife Kim here this morning and we welcome you both and uh, look forward to hearing what God has given Larry for us to hear this morning. Michael, thank you for that, that kind introduction and uh, I'm always grateful when Greg calls and says, um, I'm going to be away or something's going on or whatever. Can you come down and, and help us out at Oakmont? Because it's always good for me to be back. Because every time I come, I see old friends who I've known for a long time. And I, it never fails that I see some new folks too. Uh, because Oakmont continues to grow as a church who's devoted to Jesus Christ and his mission in this community and in the world. And so I'm always grateful to see that wonderful blending of both old and new. Let me say thank you to you, Michael, and to the Summer Choir for your worship leadership this morning. Um, Y'all get extra credit for being the Summer Choir, let me tell you. That's going over above and beyond the call of duty, and, and you did a great job. Thank you for leading us. And Steve, thank you for your hospitality this morning. I just noticed you have outstanding penmanship. I had a, a great view of what you wrote there, and for as one who's handwriting has been described generously as chicken scratch, then I can say I appreciate uh, what you've done there. And um, I'm sorry I didn't send you ahead of time what I was going to preach on, but it, it kind of reminds me in a little way of the great playwright George Bernard Shaw. He was asked one time about a play he had written many years ago, and his inquirer said, uh, uh, Mr. Shaw, uh, could you please tell us really what you meant by that? What was the meaning of that play? And he said, well, at the time I wrote it, only two people knew, me and God. And now only God knows. Uh, so I think I know what I'm going to talk about today. Uh, but, but, uh, but for sure, the Lord does. So we'll, we'll put it in his hands. And Michael, thank you for um, doing that, that little tiny commercial for uh, CBF North Carolina. We are grateful for your partnership in many, many, many ways. You've been one of our leading churches in our fellowship for a long time. 
And uh, so we don't have to waste too much more time on that. I did bring a big stack of our 2017-2018 annual report. Uh, and they are somewhere in around the church building. And I would love for uh, as many of you who can to pick one up and peruse through it. If they say a picture is worth a thousand words, well, this has got you know, dozens of pictures in it, as well as some words, as well as some figures and some other things. And this will describe uh, how we are partnering together to accomplish that stated purpose, Michael, of bringing Baptist of North Carolina together for Christ-centered ministry. And we certainly are grateful for your partnership in that endeavor. On to the text for the day now, Steve. Um, I, Michael didn't say this, but I'm actually preaching two Sundays in a row. So you're, you've got me this week and next week. And if I put these two messages together, and they are two separate messages, you know, if, they, if somebody wasn't here today, they can still take something away next week. And if you miss next week, it's okay, no problem. But I would sort of put both of these messages under the broad theme of the cost of following Jesus. So here we are in the 14th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. Jesus is in the midst of a very, very busy period of ministry. And let's look together at verses 25 through 33. Now large crowds were traveling with Jesus. And he turned and said to them, Whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even life itself cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. For which of you intending to build a tower does not first sit down and estimate the cost to see whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to ridicule him, saying, This fellow began to build and was unable to finish. A work king going out to wage war against another king will not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to oppose one who comes against him with 20,000. If he cannot, then, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, none of you can become my disciple if you do not give up all your possessions. May God add his blessing to the reading of this challenging word. Would you pray with me? Help us this day, O oh Lord to understand your call for each of us individually and as a church for the times in which we live. In the name of Jesus who gave his all, we pray. Amen. You know, the English language is full of cliches. Although people like English teachers don't care for them, Clichés do serve a very important purpose in our common communication. They express truths that can be understood readily, and, and they express them powerfully and with a greater economy of words. Like a picture, sometimes just a few words of a cliché can express whole paragraphs of other prose. 
Once you become familiar with a cliche, it doesn't require any explanation. Everybody knows immediately what you're, trying to, what you're talking about. Let me give you a few examples. Don't cry over spilt milk. The early bird gets the worm. Well, you get what you pay for. She saw the handwriting on the wall. Well, you know, there's no such thing as a free lunch. And then there's the other side of the coin. Well, it's really this last one that kind of has captured my imagination this morning. It, it reminds us that there are always at least two perspectives on every issue. Just as the coins we hold in our pocket each have two distinct sides. It's important that we always try to view the entire picture and not just one particular facet of it. Well, I think that this cliche, the other side of the coin, definitely applies to today's scripture lesson here from the 14th chapter of Luke. If you go back to the beginning of chapter 14, you'll see that it starts out with Jesus attending the Sabbath dinner in the home of a prominent Pharisee. It was a dinner that was being attended by good, respectable, law-abiding, religious people. But Jesus, in that situation, ruins their digestion in several ways, as he's often wont to do. First thing Jesus does is he heals a sick man on the Sabbath, and because it is the Sabbath, he offends their sense of what is right and what is wrong. Second thing he does is he criticizes them for taking the places of honor and for putting themselves above other people. And if that's not enough, Jesus tells this story about a smug, self-righteous person, quite frankly, a lot like them, and it doesn't sound like very good news to those folks because he says that at God's heavenly banquet, there's going to be all kinds of people, not just their kind. Everyone who responds to God's invitation, including sinners and social outcasts, will be welcome at God's feast. That's what Jesus says at the home. At, at, the, at a dinner in the home of a prominent Pharisee. The kind of things that would cheer on the people who weren't invited to that dinner. But that was then. As we move from verse 24, the whole first 24 verses of chapter 14, on to verse 25, which is where we started reading a moment ago, we also move from a relatively small group gathered in the confines of a Pharisee's home to a much larger group gathered around Jesus on the road to Jerusalem. Luke says they are large crowds. Apparently, the great invitation Jesus talked about to the Pharisees is going out into the streets and lanes of the city and into the roads and highways of the countryside, and many folks have accepted this invitation to Jesus' feast. Now, you would think... If Jesus was smart, 
that he would capitalize on this opportunity and he would use it as a chance to really get his message out, to really uh, act on the momentum that he's developed and that he would use it as a way to invite even more people to come and follow him. You would think he would use this moment as a time to begin a campaign to usher in the kingdom of God that he's been preaching so fervently about since the very beginning of his ministry. But Jesus apparently isn't that smart. Jesus blows it. He doesn't take advantage of the latest polls. They flock to him like bears to honey because he's preached about one side of the coin of salvation about how it's available to everyone, no exceptions, free of charge. A seat at the table for all. But now, with no Pharisees around, just the poor, ordinary, common folks, he told those Pharisees that God loves just as much as he loves them. Now, he shows them the other side. You see, Jesus is not an equal opportunity communicator. He always tailors his message to fit his audience. He knows what they need to hear, not what they want to hear, but what they need to hear, and that's what he tells them. Jesus was a niche marketer long before it was a popular idea in business schools. When he's with self-sufficient religious leaders who think God has no choice but to accept them because of their vast knowledge, good works, and meticulous observance of the law, he says no one can earn God's love and forgiveness because God gives it freely and without discrimination. But to those crowds, those large crowds, Luke says, who are looking for a free lunch and a free ride, most of whom will run for cover at the first sign of a hard rain, much less an old rugged cross, well, for them, he has an entirely different message altogether. He shows them the other side of the coin. This is a hard passage doesn't make for a good children's sermon, does it, Steve? It doesn't sound too much like the picture we see of Jesus feeding 5,000 and bouncing little children on his knee. Listen again to what he says. Whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, and yea, even life itself cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. None of you can become my disciples unless you give up all of your possessions. Hate father and mother, wife and children? Give up all of your possessions? Boy, these are tough words. Difficult troubling words. Can't you just see the puzzled looks on the faces of the disciples and upon this large crowd that has gathered around Jesus? And can't you see them starting to drop away like fly balls at a peewee baseball game? Jesus is giving them a warning. 
truth in advertising. He gives them two concrete examples. First of all, a person built a tower, and secondly, a king going off to war. In both of those cases, he says, the prudent person would be sure he had the resources to finish the project before ever starting it. In the same way, he warns, if you accept this invitation to God's big dinner, his grand feast, you better be sure you're not biting off more than you can chew. So what do we do with these hard words of Jesus? What do we do with the other side, the less attractive side of salvation's coin? How can we reconcile these two seemingly different points of view and apply them to our life and faith today? How? Well, I think we can begin by asking two key questions of this passage, two questions that can help us discover the gospel treasure buried underneath these hard words and honest and this honest warning of Jesus. Question number one, how much does it cost? How much does it cost? It's a good question. It's a question you know that we're used to asking every day. We are an economic people whose lives often seem to be the sum of our financial transactions. Ancient Rome had its Colosseum. Medieval Europe had its cathedrals. I think our dominant architectural expression is probably the shopping center. You know, I travel lots on Sundays. And occasionally when Kim and I are returning back home from wherever we've been and we might find ourselves stopping at a restaurant or maybe somewhere where there's commerce going on. And it's amazing to me how crowded, how crowded those shopping areas are in comparison to the church where we've just been. How much does it cost is a good one, for our, a good question for our culture. Unfortunately, the answer that Jesus gives is not so simple. In fact, it seems self-contradictory. On one side of the coin, the answer to that question is absolutely free. It, nothing. There's no charge. There's nothing you can do to buy or earn your ticket. But the answer on the other side of the coin is different. On the other side, Jesus says everything. It costs you everything you've got. It costs you your family. It costs you your possessions. It costs your very life. Of course, you might argue there are other passages in, in the Bible, including even in the words of Jesus, in which we are told to honor our parents and care for our children, not hate them. And there are certainly scriptures that assume that not all Christians take vows of poverty, but instead we're all called to serve as good stewards of whatever God has entrusted to us. And only a very small number of 
God followers in the Bible and since then are called to be martyrs. So why does Jesus have to be so extreme in this passage? Well, those who first heard Jesus speak may have understood that he was using a common communication device called hyperbole. Gross exaggeration in order to make a point. Hate does not necessarily mean to feel anger or loathing. It refers to a difference in degree, not a difference in kind. Jesus is saying that you must love God so much that your love for family, your love for your stuff, even your love for your life should pale in comparison to your first love, the love of God. I had a friend in college who felt called to be a missionary, and her first step was to have a two-year short-term appointment overseas. She told her family about this call, and her mother became very upset. She says, I don't want to give you up. I don't want to see you go away from me, not even for two years. She loved her daughter, perhaps more than she loved God. And she was willing, unwilling to let her go. What does it cost to be part of God's kingdom? It costs your family. It means loving God more than anything else. And what about that statement concerning possessions? Again, Jesus is not saying that we should all get rid of everything and become street people. In fact, Jesus often received the hospitality of wealthy people. But as with family, it's a matter of priorities. Jesus is warning those who would follow him to be honest about what's most important in their lives. If money and possessions matter to you more than God, then don't even bother to come to the banquet, Jesus is saying. God's letting you use your stuff temporarily, but if you're not willing to give it up for God's glory at any moment and give it up whenever God asks for you to give it up, then you're not fit to be my disciple. I think for most of us, for most of us, the challenge is not to give everything up, but certainly to, be, to learn to be good stewards of whatever we have. There are some of us, though, for whom it might mean something more radical. Millard Fuller was a young lawyer and an entrepreneur who accomplished the goal of becoming, his goal of becoming a millionaire by the time he was age 30. And that was back in the early 70s when a million dollars went further than it does now. Then he read Jesus' challenge to the rich young ruler to give away all of his money and possessions and follow him. And when Fuller read that passage, he heard God speaking directly to him. So he sold all his businesses and all of his investments and gave the bulk of his assets away and he began a journey of discipleship which led first to mission work in Georgia and Africa and eventually to the founding of Habitat for Humanity. So what does it cost to be part of God's kingdom? It costs your money and your possessions. It means valuing God 
above anything else. What does it cost to be part of God's kingdom? Well, on the one hand, it costs nothing. It's free. But on the other hand, it costs everything. And that brings us to question number two. Will you pay the cost? Like the first question, this is a question we are used to asking and answering. Whether the purchase we're making is small or large, whether it's a new shirt or a new car or even a new house, we've got to decide not only if it's a good value, but if we are willing to pay that price. When it comes to following Jesus, though, there is no negotiation. He sets the price, and that price is fixed. Whether or not we'll pay that price, well, that's where we come in. Because we have a say. And although the cost is the same for each one of us, the terms of the payments vary from individual to individual. As one commentator said, the cost of discipleship is paid in many different currencies. For the Gerizim demoniac, you may recall, whom Jesus healed of those demons which haunted him and forced him to live in the graveyard outside the company of others, it meant not leaving home to follow Jesus, but returning back home to live a normal life in the midst of those who formerly feared and mistreated him. For the Samaritan woman whom Jesus encountered at the heat of the day at the well, it meant being honest about her failed marriages and her current state of cohabitation. It meant coming clean with God and starting all over again with a renewed understanding of the relationships with that she had with both the men and the women of her life. For the rich young ruler, it meant giving away all of his wealth and saying to Jesus, wherever you lead, I'll go. For the 22-year-old recent graduate of engineering school, it may mean turning down the opportunity to make $70,000 her first year on the job and going to Haiti to rebuild that terribly struggling nation where they have so little. For the empty nesters whose children are gone and whose house may be almost paid for, who may be in your peak earning years, it may mean growing in stewardship, no longer living off the generosity of others, but leading by example and being the faithful, generous leaders and stewards that your church and your community need you now to be. And for the recently retired person, with good health and few daily obligations to tie you down. It means getting involved in service to God and others, becoming a man or a woman at work in God's kingdom, serving Christ, 
church, community, state, nation, and world, maybe in ways you have been unable to serve until now. For you, Oakmont Baptist Church, who have been so faithful in ministry and mission for lo these five or so decades, it means opening your eyes again, seeing fields white unto harvest all around you, and discerning what kind of innovative ministries is God calling us to be engaged in to reach people in this time with the good news of Jesus Christ. Heard a story of a pastor. I don't think it was Greg Rogers. It wasn't me. But I heard the story of a pastor who was counseling with a new convert to the Christian faith. And the man said to him, well, so far, I think I understand the situation pretty clearly. I'm a sinner. Christ died for me. By confessing my sins and professing him as Savior and Lord, I'm forgiven through his blood and sacrifice. Pastor said, yeah, that's right. That pretty much sums it up. But there is one thing I'm not clear on, Pastor. You haven't said anything about money. Surely it must cost me something to be a Christian. How much should I give? Pastor thought about it a little bit. And then he began to explain to him the concept of the tithe. And the man said, wow, that's a fantastic deal for me. My whiskey and gambling used to cost me twice that. One side of the coin says that salvation is free. We cannot earn it or pay for it. But the other side of the coin says that salvation is costly, very costly, far, far more than just 10%. So be warned, count the cost, don't start what you can't finish. That's the other side of the coin. Let's pray. God of grace, who gives to us freely that which we cannot earn, help us now to give to you all that we have and are, that we may be faithful participants of your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.